Thanks for pressing play. I'm producer Jason DeFilippo, sitting in for Chris while he deals with a family emergency. Today, Chris goes deep on how to design a legendary category, company, product, and brand with his super special guest, Michelle Stacy. She's a living consumer products marketing legend. Michelle spent many years honing her craft at Gillette, where she led Oral-B and launched a number of great new products, including the Pulsar battery-powered manual toothbrush. She was the president of Corig from 2010 to 2014, where the business grew from less than $1 billion in revenue to $4.5 billion. She helped take Corig from being a category-defining product to becoming what we in tech call a platform by allowing the competition to sell their coffee for Keurig's machines. She's been a board member at iRobot, Coravin, which is a legendary wine preservation system, and Hydrofacial. You can listen to Clint Carnell, the CEO of Hydrofacial, on Follow Your Different, number 160. Great episode. Highly recommended. Now, America's ready to get back to work, and that's where NetSuite by Oracle, the world's number one cloud business system, comes in. You can see how they can transform your business at netsuite.com slash different. We're also sponsored by our good friends at Splunk. Visit splunk.com slash D2E to learn how to turn data into doing. And now, hey-ho, let's go. This is Lockheed Marketing, the podcast that helps you develop the lens for what makes legendary marketing legendary. Hosted by Christopher Lockhead, three-time CMO, godfather of category design, and a high school dropout, who the Marketing Journal calls one of the best minds in marketing, and The Economist calls off-putting to some. Well, Michelle, I really uh, have, have been looking forward to this time together very much. I, absolutely. Um, I can't wait to see where the conversation goes. <laughs> it could be a magical mystery tour here, Michelle. It often is. I hope it will be. Now, my, my, the first thing I've been sort of thinking about what I wanted to ask you is you have this insanely great career. and We'll get into it, I'm sure. But the f- thing I was wondering this morning was, what is it that Michelle knows about marketing that most other people wouldn't know or is counterintuitive? Like Ooh. you have to know something that most of us don't know. <laughs> Gosh, you know, I don't know if I know anything that people don't know. I think that maybe what always resonates with me is putting the consumer first and trying to think through how do I make an emotional connection between what I want with the consumer to buy and the product itself? And to me, it's that's where longevity happens around products. When you can get mm. a consumer to fall in love with your product, then you have the opportunity to, as you would put it, become a category king. Yeah. And so, you know, I think about, uh, I mean, there's so much in your background, um, Keurig maybe, you know, you created a whole new category, you changed coffee, Uh, you certainly changed coffee in the workplace because coffee in the workplace had been pretty much a disaster my whole life. And of course that, I don't know, I don't know which came first. Maybe you'll tell me the consumer side or the, the business side, but Keurig changes coffee. It's a whole new category in a space that's hundreds of years old. And so maybe tell me a little bit about the, the Keurig story and, and, and particularly what you want 
um, to share, you know, what you'd like people to know and learn from that kind of experience of building a giant new consumer category in the dominating brand? So I, you know, that was, that was first of all, a job and a role of a lifetime. You know, you, we all have opportunities in our career. That one really fell in my lap. And just for a little bit of an amusement before I answer your question, I started in that business on November of 2008, about two weeks before the world came apart financially. And I thought, oh shit, I've just joined a company to lead a business that's a premium end $100 plus coffee machine. And the economy has just dropped out and there's no way this business is going to go forward. And in fact, I believe that Christmas, we actually grew 100% year over year. And so there are surprises. And that took us on a whirlwind tour. And at that time, we thought that recession was going to be uh, was going to be a doozy. Uh, we're, we're living a whole other. We're living a whole other one right now. So and, and so I hate to interrupt you, but 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 I must. So here you are at, during a massive financial crisis, launching a new category and product. You you know, could easily have been the situation that the whole thing is way off forecast. And yet you you end up producing that kind of result over the holiday season. Maybe pop the hood on that for me a little bit. So that's what I was going to do. It's going to go back a little bit and start to pop the hood and take you through some of the steps that took us from being a nobody in the coffee category to being really one of the the leading um, dollar shareholder in the coffee category. Consumers have always really struggled with how to get a great cup of coffee. And quite frankly, drip coffee makers had a fair share of their own problems, right? You, They're messy, there's measuring. And then the one problem that most consumers never knew about, but Keurig solved better than anybody was coffee goes stale. It goes stale very quickly when exposed to air. You can try getting in beans, it still goes stale. You can put it in your freezer, it still goes stale. And so most of the time when consumers get a bad tasting cup of coffee, it's not that they measured wrong. It's that the coffee was stale. And so I didn't know that. Yeah. It's it's sort of, but we didn't. I mean, I knew it went stale, but I didn't know that was the main reason coffee sucks when it sucks. Yeah. That's one of the main reasons it sucks when it, when it doesn't taste really good. So one of the things that the Keurig system and the inventors of Keurig really worked on was making sure that the K cup was an oxygen barrier. And therefore, mm. as a single serve, it doesn't go stale, at least not for at least a year. And to put, put into context for me, that that's a material change in sh- shelf life of the yeah, of coffee, for, is it? From not? like two or three days to a year. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> that would be a material change. <laughs> that's a material. That would be called different, not better. <laughs> yes. And so the message that, that was started with consumers was, you know, think of all of the mess that you have with your you know, your drip coffee, cleaning up the grounds, measuring it, et cetera. Here, with the press of a button, you get a perfect cup of coffee every time. And then the team that had started on the launch of Curry. I, I hate um, to interrupt you again, but I just hear so many jewels in what you say. I love how how you're still championing the brand and the category in the way that you speak. Like you're still you're still laying it's, it's laying it down on me. <laughs> I have to say, I feel passionate about all my brands. You can talk to me about even the brands I work on today, and you know, whether it's Corvin or Roomba and iRobot or Hydrofacial, I'm passionate about all the brands I work I on. I want to hear all about Roomba too. And man, Roomba has been the creator of some of the great animal uh, YouTube videos. 
<laughs> yes, it has. I'll never forget. I'll never forget the first time I saw a hen riding around on one. I was like, now that is cool. <laughs> I don't know if it cleans the floor, but it's a great toy for your hen. <laughs> it does clean the floor, but in I just there are so many funny YouTube videos, and I always love watching how the animals react to it as it moves. Um, <laughs> Sorry, but I digress. So I'll go back to Kirk. I'll bring us back to Kirk. So they decided that the best way to get the consumer familiar with Kirk was to go through what we would call consumer-facing businesses. And so their initial launch plan to begin to take, the other thing is the first couple of machines cost a fortune. So they needed to have a path where they could introduce the product to the consumer and at the same time take down the cost of manufacturing of the machine and get the, the consumer ready to buy it and bring it into the home. And so they went through what I call consumer-facing businesses health clubs, doctor's offices, lawyer's offices, car dealerships, hotels. So you can sort of see where you first started to get an experience going to the coffee machine in your office where they could service the initial prototypes and do everything correctly. So by the time, the other piece that they learned very quickly, because Keurig was actually the fifth single serve company to market. They're just the one that got it right is an interesting discussion. I love this, Michelle, <laughs> because one of the things that I hope to fix before my time is done is is people conflating uh, first to market or this thing that came out of the tech industry we called um, a first mover advantage and being the company that designs and dominates the category. A lot of people conflate the two. They think if you're going to uh, dominate a new category, you have to be first in that category. And what they don't seem to understand is you need to be first to get the category to tip around your definition of what the new category should be. And when the world accepts your definition and it tips, you win. And in this case, you were fifth. We were fifth. And I think that's, I would, the only thing I'd add to what you say is I sometimes think you have to be best to market. You have to address the total change that the consumer is looking for. And so one of the things that we quickly discovered is that if a consumer is going to spend a lot of money for a coffee machine, they don't want to be locked into a single brand of coffee. And by the way, this was the key to all of the change that happened to Keurig through its history. And so what they quickly discovered where everybody else had been, my coffee machine, my coffee, Keurig started to say, my coffee machine and Green Mountain's coffee. And they then had five early partners in Van Oot, um, Gloria Jeans. They had a couple of different smaller brands of coffee, local brands that they brought into the system very early. So it wasn't just my coffee. It was this range of selection of coffee. And so the consumer didn't feel trapped. In this regard, you tell me if you think this uh, uh, comparison or analogy fits. It seems to me what you did was somewhat akin to what Apple did with the App Store. Mm -hmm. The first, you had a fully integrated product that works and that has a, has a pretty broad set of capability. In this case, of course, I have a I have a wonderful machine, modern machine. I have this new experience and I have this great coffee and I put it all together. And when I buy the thing, boom, bada bing, I'm making coffee pretty quickly, right? right. So you've created a complete product, a complete system. But at the same time, you create 
for for what we in the tech industry would call a, an app marketplace. Mm-hmm. Is, is that a fair analogy? I think, uh, yes, I would absolutely use that as a, as a fair analogy. And what was interesting is somewhere around the end, and I may not have my dates exact here, but somewhere around the end of 2006, Green Mountain Coffee Roasters bought Keurig. They were the leading brand of coffee in the machine and saw the future to that. And so isn't that a fascinating turn of events? It is. Um, the other interesting thing was to think about is that Keurig became one of the, I've had a chance to work on Gillette blades and razors, which is another topic we could talk about. I'm a massive consumer of uh, your products, as you can probably (laughs) tell by my lack of hairdo. (laughs) That's, that's totally fine. Uh, I got to tell you that, uh, what, what do you call the razor with the battery in it that vibrates? Oh yeah. Um, it's, I, it, pulsar. A pulsar. Thank you. Right. Yeah. That thing's unbelievable. Yeah. I don't know why that, maybe you'll tell me, I don't know why that works so well, but as a guy that shaves his head on a fairly regular basis, that's a magical product. The the vibrations do a little bit of numbing. Hmm. So it adds a good, sen- a good sensation. And actually, that was also part of the technology that went into the toothbrush. They both shared the same vibrating technology. But we'll go back to that. Okay, I, I definitely want to go back to that. So let's go back to Curry Ground Mountain, Green Mountain. But I'm, I'm not done on the vibrating shit yet. <laughs> we'll come back um, because I want to talk to you about how Gillette transformed and how existing, how big companies can transform existing categories because that's a very interesting story. So Green Mountain Coffee Roasters actually bought Curry and very much bought into the recurring revenue business what we used mm. to call in the blade razor business, right? And we were, you know, in the consumer products, I think in software, there's a lot of recurring revenue businesses, but in consumer products, there's a little bit less. And it really opened up what I call the, probably the second biggest recurring revenue business after blades and razors in the consumer products arena. Um, in fact, a little known fact is um, probably through, at least when I left the company, Keurig lost money on every brewer that was bought and made money. The, the device, the machine. The machine. We actually lost money on every machine that we sold, but we made money in the recurring revenue of the portion packs or the K-cups that were sold afterwards. Um, so we go back to that 2008, and in 2008, the recession hit. The business was moving from the office space where it already had a known set of consumers who were familiar with it and into the consumer space And what really happened was consumers said, oh my God, I can get a great cup of coffee and I can get it at home instead of spending $3 to go to Starbucks every day. And so the initial thought- So it was an economic argument. There was an economic argument for the consumer because they could get what they felt was the same quality of coffee. They didn't want to sacrifice taste to quality. Right. But it was a pain in the ass to go to the Starbucks when you could have it in your kitchen. For 50 cents. And obviously, there's an economic piece, yes. And there was also an economic piece for all of our retailers. So if you think mm. about it, retailers were selling cans of Maxwell House and Folgers, et cetera, at less than a dollar a cup, or less than 10 cents a cup. And here we were coming along selling a K-cup at over 50 cents a cup. And so is it this magical, you ma- you found this magic zone essentially in between Maxwell House and Starbucks that, exactly. that was sort of hiding in plain sight, like a lot of category designers. Yes. 
How, what was it about you and the team at Keurig that saw that, you know, you might call it a, an aha or a strategic missing. You saw this delta that no one else was seeing and you built such an amazing company and category around it. So, I, you know, I think that part of what we saw, you know, came from having done this exactly the same when Gillette changed the model from disposable razors to um, the blade razor business as we know it today. Some of it was... In your DNA, in my DNA is the concept of looking at how do you create value in every step of your, of your environment so that you're creating value for the consumer, you're creating value for the retailer, you're creating value for your suppliers that are supplying you with product. And so as everyone benefits within an ecosystem, it creates momentum. And I think. I don't know if we were that deliberate about it. There were some moves that were very deliberate. Um, I don't know whether we had that discipline that you bring together in your in your Play Bigger book, but certainly all of those steps were a part of our thought process. Whether yeah. we deliberately sat there or whether we to some degree fell into it, uh, which I'm willing to admit to. No, but it's interesting. It's one of the reasons we wanted to write Play Bigger because we saw business and marketing leaders intuitively doing these things yeah right uh you did you did the book plus or minus right right it but it was there wasn't language and it wasn't it wasn't dis, it wasn't distinguished from marketing right and so we were trying to wrap our arms around okay when people get this right they're actually doing something very different than traditional marketing they're not because traditional marketing is all predicated on we're going to co- compete for share right. with a better product Right. And the legends didn't do that. They saw these openings. They saw these 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 new categories hiding in plain sight and figured out how to drive a Mack truck through it. And once the world went, oh, shit, Starbucks, three bucks, Maxwell House, 10 cents in between bang in the house done. I think the other piece that happened is that the consumer fell in love with their currents. Now, for me, and it was so fun, you know, you, we would read the consumer letters with consumers wrapping their arms around their Keurig and saying, I can't live without this machine. I don't know whether it just simplified their morning and got them to their aha quicker, but they fell in love with their Keurig. And then it became this, this drive to find out what else their Keurig could do, which led us to the <laughs> concept of, you know, doing tea, doing hot cocoa, doing hot cider. Um, doing unique blends of coffee from unique um, coffee plantations. It was this fascinating love relationship where, as Eddie would call it, and I'm sure you've done a little bit of work about super consumers. They're consumers that not only use your product, but they're passionately in love with it. And we used to say brewers begot brewers. If we could get one consumer in a neighborhood to have a curry, they would share it by word of mouth with all of their friends. And that's what took off. And then, you know, uh, you talk a little bit about courage. And in this one, I want to give the courage mark to the CEO, who was Larry Blanford at the time, and the entire management team. If you're Green Mountain Coffee Roasters and you decide, you know, you've got almost all of the K-Cups going through your brewer or your brand, and all of a sudden you decide that what you're going to do is invite your biggest competition into your category and go from being a small brand to being really a network 
of brands. That was an amazing, courageous decision that the company took to invite in on a licensing arrangement, Dunkin' Donuts, Starbucks, Folgers, um, the three big guys and have them participate in the brand. That took courage because you're actually looking at a team of Green Mountain Coffee Roaster um, coffee brand managers saying, oh my God, how am I going to hold my share if now S- Starbucks can be sold in the brewer? And what it actually did was gave the brewer so much momentum that um, that it were, it's like the, what is it, tides on a high tide, all boats rise. I'm not too sure mm-hmm. what the correct expression is, but it wrote, it, it raised yeah, it just, the water it took for the category to a whole other place. Exactly. And here's the interesting thing. And this as somebody who spent the better part of 34 years in the tech industry, what you did, I think how many of us in the tech industry would think about what you did was you made the strategic shift that so many tech vendors want to and w- wish for and many fail, which is if they're successful in the beginning, they're successful in a niche, and essentially they're selling a product in a category they're trying to pioneer. But to become a mega success in the tech business, you have to be this thing that today we describe as a platform. And a key component of a platform is it has players on the platform. It has a, if you'll allow me the jargon, an ecosystem, Mm -hmm. right? And so... The fascinating thing to me is you took a fucking coffee maker. Turned it into a platform. Yes. And actually, it was very interesting. Um, Larry actually really recognized that and actually brought it up as that we're changing from a brand to a network. Same thing. Yes. It was a very similar thing, but a very brave and courageous thing to do that took and accelerated the brand for the last two or three years, um, you know, from... I would say 2012 to 2014. And what was the, we've, I've been finding myself in a lot of discussions uh, about true North. The the environment that we find ourselves in right now is rapid, fast paced, and, and CEOs and CMOs have to react to things that in the market, things that are going on with customers, things that are going on with employees uh, very, very quickly. You know, it's, it's things like, um, you know, Ford, their, their employees, some number of their employees coming out saying, we want you to stop selling police interceptors. And the CEO saying, NFW, we're not doing that. And whatever problems there may be with the police and whatever reforms need to be, they got nothing to do with their cars and police need good cars and we're going to keep selling cars and, and, and sort of let the chips fall where they may. And, and so whether it's with employees or with customers, many companies, you know, Starbucks had this recently where um, they didn't allow employees to wear Black Lives Matter T-shirt and so forth and, and pins and, and the like at the stores and the backlash with customers happened fast and bam, they had to change. And so I guess my point is we're, we're living in this environment where business leaders are being confronted with all sorts of things and often things that, that um, um, require some kind of a public and or employee response. And so with all that said, Michelle, what I'm wondering is how did you develop a sort of a true North core values that said, you know what? 
while to some people it might be crazy that we're introducing our competitors into this incredible product that we've created, this product and category we've created and are dominating, we're now going to invite the competition in. To many, that would seem insane. And so my question is, what sort of true north were you folks tethered to that made that decision look smart? I'm going to answer that in two ways. Um, I think the first thing that I would say is we were really tied to the concept of delighting the consumer on every front. And so choice was a very big part of delighting the consumer. The second thing, which tied both to a business and a corporate culture, was Green Mountain Coffee Roasters, or Curd Green Mountain as it's now known, was known for doing business, doing good while doing well, or doing well while doing good. It was a part of everything we did. In fact, at Keurig and at Green Mountain, every employee had 40 hours of community service a year as part of their benefits. That's a week. Mm. That's mm-hmm. a week that every employee could go out and do things within the community. And we encouraged everybody to do it. It was the best builder of culture that you could possibly imagine. Because as you can imagine, we went from 200 million to 4.5 billion and five years. We were adding employees right and left. And the minute you walked in the building, you would see a sign that said, today, the van's going to Habitat for Humanity at one o'clock. And sign up. And when the van was full, it would go off to Habitat and Humanity. And you had existing employees from all different departments now working side by side. We must have built four houses for Habitat for Humanity. We did, you know, greeted our troops at Pease Air Force Base when they came back from deployment. We did all sorts of, wow. every single week, at least twice a week, there was some sort of event that allowed everybody to get together in small groups and make bonds across the company. That also translated in how we believe we should do business with partners. And I think that you know, it was in Larry Blanford's DNA that you just met him and you knew you were meeting a great person who had the highest levels of ethics and integrity. And you felt that you could trust him in building a relationship that would allow a Starbucks or a Dunkin or a Folgers to actually trust that we would do right by them and their brands and build a good partnership. Even though we we were going to compete on this dimension. Even though we're going to compete, even though we're both going to be at the shelf competing, that, you know, we were the full supplier of all of their products, that we were going to do everything we could to ensure that their success is along with ours. And it was just a part of our DNA to do well while doing good. And you just Mm. felt it and you felt it within the company. And interesting, when you go into hyper growth, one of the most important things I feel you have to do is motivate your, your workforce to give you even more, right? Because the business is growing faster than you can grow your workforce. It's growing faster than for us that we could grow our processes, our resources. Um, I laughed one day because I walked in the building. I said, um, and I walked by the broom closet and I went, there are desks in the broom closet. I had completely forgotten as part of my growth that I had to think about where I was going to put people. And we had people starting with no office, no cubicle space. And so we stuck them in the broom closet. And I had to, I laughed. I went, I've got a problem. I got a solve I never thought about really before. 
So as you can imagine, you know, you have to motivate these people and the concept of doing good while doing well was a huge motivational tool. And you just felt good about being a part of the company. Now, you know, you're, you're onto something so important. I have believed for a long time that the role of marketing is at a minimum equally important internally than externally. And in some ways, and I argue with myself about this in my head, but in some ways, maybe even more importantly, because, because we own communication, we set the tone and marketing contributes a ton to the culture. And so I'm just curious what you think about the role of marketing internally and in particular helping to build um, this kind of a culture. So, you know, it's interesting. Um, I've talked about emotional connection to the brand and that emotional connection is an internal as well as an external emotional connection, right? I'll go and digress to the Gillette days when Gillette really changed what shaving was all about. It launched that back in 1989, I believe it was, with the Gillette, the best a man can get. And while that was an external communication, I still think that every Gillette employee who was in the business at that time, we still stand up and salute to the best a man can get. It was a way to elevate the brand both externally and internally. And it was transformational to that category. Um, if you go prior to that, and I'm taking you down a different little bit of a road here, in the 70s and 80s, shaving was about shit shower and shave, right? It was disposable razors by the pack at the lowest possible cost. I remember those, um, I guess they probably still sell them, those, those orange or yellowy throwaway shitty little Bix. Yep, exactly. And we were in a price war with Bic. And we realized that the better shave came from the more expensive systems like Atra, et cetera. And we've been working on sensor, but we didn't really... And I wasn't on Blades and Razors complete. There's a whole group of people you can talk to more that would even have more background than me. But what really came to the forefront to the senior management team was that we weren't about shaving. That Gillette was about, and it was Phil Duesenbury who was quoted as um, from BBDNO, was quoted as saying, the job that Gillette is in is in making men look and feel their very best. Which totally changes the dynamic of what that category was about and allowed Gillette to position itself with consumers around male grooming and that how you look reflects on how you feel. And it allowed Gillette to expand into sensor and to re refillable or and replaceable blades. It changed that entire category. So they got 80% of the value of that category it allowed them to launch into shave preps, antiperspirants, and deodorants in some parts of the world after shaves. And it completely expanded them into what we call, we call a male grooming giant. And it was constantly reminding us that we were about the best a man can get, which was how do we make products that are the best a man can get? How do we behave? How do we showcase our products in a way that is the best a man can get? And that product anthem still really lives very well in all of our hearts today. This may sound like a funny question, but, you know, how do you as a non-man get steeped in 
becoming a legendary marketer for a suite of products that are targeted at a user that at some level you'll understand, but at another level you won't, right? Right. Well, you know, um, that's always very interesting. You always get asked, you have to be a user of the product to feel passionate and understand the consumer of that product. And I don't think you do. I'm certainly not a man. I've never shaved my face. Um, so I, you know, I don't know their experience, but I've certainly listened to them. I've watched them. You have to, you have to be attuned. In fact, it's very important for marketers to realize that they aren't the target audience many of the times. And you have to understand what it is your target audience is thinking, feeling, how they're using it. It's the ability to listen and then to put that into a, a framework where you can address their concerns and, and take them somewhere else. Michelle, is it inappropriate in a discussion about marketing to tell another person that you love them? No, go right ahead. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I am sick of this. Well, in order to market a blah, 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 you have to be the blah, 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 the user of the blah, blah, blah. Well, look, often there's a good reason for that. And you have to have some people around that are, you know, users of it. But to your point, if you're going to be a legendary marketer, you have to be legendary at marketing shit that you would never use ever. Exactly. Right. And you have to find a way to connect with your consumer, connect with your ideal customer. And, and, and to your point, you, you became passionate about uh, the best a man can get. And, and why not? I could get passionate about selling. I could get passionate about selling and marketing products to women. You know, we, we connect on hydrofacial. It's not really yeah. a product for men, although I know men use it. It's more of a woman's oriented product. I, I can get it. And Clint's an amazing CEO and he's not the target yes. customer. Exactly. I, th this stupidity makes me nuts. And to hear you say what you just said, I love that you're willing to throw that down. Thank you. Oh, absolutely. I think a great marketers learn that they can they can listen and apply what they what they know to any consumer. Yeah. Now you do have to understand your product. So you know, I, I haven't had any roles yet in the tech space because, as we learned a little earlier today, I'm not the most tech savvy person, but. If I had a tech marketing job, I would immerse myself in understanding the product, the consumer, the way they used it, um, how they relate to it, what they thought was great about it, what problems they had with it, because it's an understanding and listening to that consumer that you can find those gems that allow you to propel your business forward. Uh, I'd like to nudge you a little on that. Can I, you mind if I give you a little nudge on that one? Sure. I think you are a technology marketer. <laughs> Well, thank you. Keurig is a technology. Yes. And even if you'd want to say Keurig is not a technology, which I would disagree with because it, it's, it's, a, it's a technically savvy product to create and deliver, but that you could debate it, whatever, fine. But you did what every tech company or many tech companies want to do, which is, which is to take a one product niche and expand it into a platform. And then at Gillette, look, you created product innovations that were new and different than had existed before. Right. And you figure you figured out how to distinguish them to create a new category or sub subcategory, if you want to get technical about it, that had not existed. And, and, and you were, cause look, I, I, 
I'm the target customer. I remember the introduction of some of these these key products. You were te- you were you were marketing me why this number of blades was right and why the pulsating was right and why the you know and this is you 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 presented this particularly to dudes in, in a technology like way. So I, I I give you more credit for technology savvy than uh, than maybe you do. <laughs> okay, what I am going to do is I'm going to pass a lot of the credit on the Gillette blade and razors to people who were senior to me at the time at Gillette. I was quite you know. I was still in my early 30s in the uh, in, in the uh, late 80s when all of this happened. There was certainly a group of very, very incredible marketers at Gillette who transformed that company. I don't want to be, I don't, I will not claim the lead role in that at all. Well, I was I lucky to be brought along as a brand manager for the ride. But listen, the the bottom line is you are an up and coming brand manager and you were part of the success. And sure, there was executive, I, I, I get all that stuff, but um being on the winning team is being on the winning team, regardless of the role that you play. And you were an up, up and coming, you know, rock star in training, whatever. And so, so let, let me ask you about the, let me ask you about the vibrating. Why do we like the toothbrush and the, and the razor blade that, that vibrates? And why is it when I get into the shower, cause I shave my head in the shower, as you might expect, and I got the shower running and I'm in there and I pick up my blade and the battery dies. And I'm like, ah, oh, fuck, I got to shave my head without my, that's that's a bummer way to get the day started (laughs) i want my thing to vibrate why why would why why do we like that and how did you build such a giant category around you know that as a key technology so one of the things that gillette always had as part of its dna was that they were always going to be working on the next innovation before they launched the first innovation so they always had a tremendous roadmap of what was going to come next every single time. So when Sensor launched, Sensor Excel was already in, in the making and Mach 3 was already in the making when Sensor Excel launched. And the vibration um, fusion and all of the vibrating razors that came up later were also already in development. From early work that Gillette had done, they understood that the vibrations in some way created some sort of a skin sensation that allowed men to feel like they were getting a more comfortable shave. Now, um, and interestingly, um, because you have a little bit in your book, when we always talk about categories that companies missed, and Gillette certainly missed it to start off with, is that we had power toothbrushes and manual toothbrushes and a battery company. We never, and it was Colgate and Crest that put the battery in the first toothbrush. It was like, how did we miss this? Um, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I think Sony did, Sony did the same thing with the MP3 player, right? They had an MP3 player and a, and they missed. So sometimes you can be you can be siloed and actually miss opportunities. But um, when all of a sudden we realized that we needed to to create a toothbrush that was powered by a battery, there were a couple of different ways we could go. We could go a more traditional route where you put the battery in and you you kind of like a crest spin brush, or you could go into something that had a vibration. And what we discovered is that there were a certain group of consumers in the oral care category who didn't like the idea of batteries around water. They didn't want to change batteries. They didn't want to deal with the fact that the battery was being put into water. Men felt somewhat the same way. And so they wanted a battery-powered or vibrating toothbrush that they didn't know had a battery in it. Because um, <laughs> what we thought, if we took it into the shower, it might electrocute us and kill us, or, or yeah, it might lose battery acid on 
our face or head or wherever we were shaving. <laughs> exactly. They they just didn't want to be bothered with this this it, this whole thing called batteries. They wanted a manual toothbrush that acted like a power toothbrush. They wanted a manual razor that acted like an electric razor. And so that's where the vibration and the concept of putting a battery in that vibrated the razor or the toothbrush, but didn't need to be changed. Now, over time, that may have changed. Um, I'm not too sure where all the technology in blades and razors, I haven't been on blades and razors since 2000. I'm not too sure where all the technology has gone, but um, that was sort of the background and the consumer insight behind it. Fascinating. Now, I'm curious, let's say I was a young up-and-coming marketer and I looked at you and I said, wow, you know, Michelle, you, you had this insanely great career, uh, bigger established companies, entrepreneurial companies today are on a bunch of boards, uh, pioneering new categories, pioneering technologies and products and uh, the whole thing. You, I mean, you've had the whole ride. If you're a young marketer, uh, I would look to you and go, wow, she's had the ride that, that you would wish you could have. What would be the things that you would share with me about what you've learned about how to build a legendary career um, that you think might make a difference for me if I was uh, an up-and-coming type person? I think the first thing I'd say is expect the unexpected. Um, I would say that my career is part luck and part hard work. Um, I would also say that I've taken two very sideways moves during my career. And I came out the stronger person both times for that. And when you say sideways, you mean you didn't get promoted up. You got a or lateral down. job or lateral down. Or down. Um, wow. In, so, you know, I'm, I'm, I've actually had articles written about this in early 2000. I had two young children. My, I'm a part of a dual career. Um, I had Oh, in 2000, my daughter would have been in middle school, high school. My son was in elementary, middle school area. Uh, my mother had Alzheimer's. And I was trying to work a full-time global job. And I wasn't doing a very good job of it. Hmm. It's just, you know, there's a, there was a lot on my plate. And it wasn't the performance results that I would have said was suffering, but it was more the time that it takes to build relationships. That You know, I was stretched so tight that I had very little time to be the engaging person that I like to be. And it was seen by my boss and I actually had went in and had a conversation with him. And um, we decided that the best thing to do is to put me on special projects. And roughly how old would you have been if you don't mind sharing, Michelle? Oh, in 2000, let's go back and call it 20 years ago, I would have been 40. Yeah. So really in the prime of your career, from a purely career business orientation, but also huge things going on in your family, your kids at a p- pivotal, critical point in their growth and development, your mom uh, going through what she's going through. So a lot of life going on outside this career and you were having a pretty big career. And so, you know, 40 for many people is sort of like, you know, they're really going, right? And so um, what happens next in this story? So, you know, very interesting. So when you talk about special projects, I don't know what how it is now today, but when somebody gets announced that they're going on special projects, um, it usually means they've been asked to leave or move along. Yeah, we're going to put the special ones on the special, <laughs> special projects. projects. Exactly. <laughs> and I had a wonderful boss at the time who, do, who believed that business is a long time and um, gave me every opportunity to work on special projects. I delivered during that time 
two acquisitions for the company. Um, I worked on a number of different business geographical business growth projects. I launched the children's toothbrush business. I did a bunch of things. So I actually felt like I did a lot of things. Kind of lazy sounding for a, for a step down job. It was kind of lazy sounding, but it <laughs> took me out of the the I'm being ridiculous. It sounds oh, like I you did a lot in a step down job. But it took me out of the quarterly results, uh, you know, all of that other thing. So I could be a little bit more relaxed. And what was interesting is um when um when my mom did pass on, um, it was just about at the start of the PG acquisition, and I was instantly brought back in the business, promoted back and above my prior level, and went on to run you know, one of the part, one of the pieces of the Oral B business during its consolidation with Procter and Gamble that allowed me eventually to move on to Curry. And I guess I would tell people is don't be afraid to step sideways. Don't be afraid to step down. If you can continue to learn, you can continue to perform and you can continue to be true to yourself, then it's going to benefit you in the long run. And don't measure yourself by anybody else. I mean, I can go back to my, you know, my early days out of business school and you're like, oh, did I get promoted as fast as everybody else? Um, Am I moving as fast as everybody else? I think if you were to line up all of us that left business school and entered Gillette in the 19, early 1980s and said, who actually ran a 4.5 billion a growth company like Curry? I'd probably be one of the few. And mm-hmm. no one would have put, said, that's going to be Michelle. So I think I'd say a lot of my career is surprising. Hmm. And how, uh, I mean, part of it was, uh, I'm sure your boss and the company culture, but, but part of it's you too. How do you develop a relationship in this case with your boss and probably your colleagues where you can have a real no bullshit conversation with your boss and say, Hey, listen, I love my job. I love this company. I love everything I'm doing. But the reality is I have some things in my life and I care deeply about my family and, 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 and I have to spend more time there. Uh, and so I, I have to make a change. What is it about both your boss, sort of if you think about the three things, the company culture overall, and maybe your colleagues, and and also yourself that allows you to have a no bullshit real life conversation that you're open to having and that the company responds so positively. And then as your life develops and, and, and changes and you're able to step back up. They open that door back up. That 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 sounds like a pretty extraordinary set of uh, events to make happen in one's career. Well, I think that we're always working on making ourselves better. I've been lucky to have great executive coaches. I think there were times that, you know, I wasn't always the best fit, the easiest person, the nicest person to get along with. Um, I think I've worked very hard over the last 20 years to be relatable, um, to see to be more collaborative. Um, I think when I first started my career, I was very much the single-minded blinders on, drive for the finish line, deliver the results. And that was what I was well known for. And in fact, somebody once said to me, well, you never smile. And I'm thinking, I don't. Um, I'm and- too busy kicking ass. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That was what I was. I was too busy kicking ass. And then I sort of learned that, you know what? People want to follow people and work with people that they can relate to, that they that they find have heart and integrity, that you can relate to, that you that you enjoy and like, and that you find yourself that you can be relatable. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my funny stories of my time at Keurig, and I often think that people think that presidents and CEOs only read the Wall Street Journal. 
and only watch the NBC News and CNN News and that they, you know, that, and I remember getting in the elevator with about 10 people to go up to my floor and I was exhausted and, you know, nobody talks until the senior person in the elevator talks, right? <laughs> That's the rule. So I'm sitting there and thinking, well, I got 12 people here. I don't know anybody. They said, I am exhausted. I watched The Bachelor too late last night. <laughs> And I swear to God, the entire elevator cracked up. I mean, in their wildest dreams, none of them thought that the CEO would be watching or the president would be watching The Bachelor at night. (laughs) And for me, it was a pleasant show to watch at night. It was unstressful. I didn't have to worry. Nobody got shot off. Nobody died. You know, it was easy. I understand. Sometimes we just want to watch stupid TV just because we want to consume something stupid because we don't want to have anything else going on. And in our lives. And it was funny because within a day, that spread throughout the organization. And everywhere I went, because I made a point of going to different coffee machines to have a cup of coffee for all of my coffee breaks, people I didn't even know would walk up and go, that's Sean. He's really one of the best bachelors, isn't he? And I'm like, oh, yeah. It was like I became relatable to them. I was no longer this person who was, you know, reading the Wall Street Journal at night. I was the right. person watching The Bachelor. <laughs> so uh, over, it sounds like over your career, you let your your personality come out more and more, and you weren't you weren't yeah. just hard charging, but kicking Michelle. Exactly, I can be hard charging. And oh, I, I got it. Yeah, <laughs> I have no doubt about that. <laughs> but I managed to to put that together with with somebody that's a little bit more relaxed and a little bit more relatable. Fantastic. Michelle, I know I don't have you forever. Is there anything else you'd like to touch on before we wrap? No, I'd, I'd love to. I, I, I'm so excited to read your book. And it was sort of funny because I found so many things that I sort of did along the way that sort of fit your, your book. And one of these days, maybe there's another podcast that talks about once you've innovated, how do you harvest and how do you harvest without losing your business? Because I think there's some very interesting discussions we could have of what happened to current post-2015, what's happening with Gillette today. And, you know, how do you go about building categories when you don't have the resources? I've been very, very lucky that at both Keurig and at Gillette, these were companies that allowed us to transform categories, but already had some resources. And I certainly would say that there's probably a whole different discussion when I work. I work on Corvin, um, the single serve wine device where you can get a glass of wine without uncorking your bottle. And tremendous way to transform the wine category from opening a bottle to just getting the glass out. And um, how big is the glass? <laughs> you can make it as small or large as you like. I sometimes now at night put out three glasses of wine and give myself a little bit of of white or Riesling to start with my dinner and a little bit of Cabernet to go with my, uh, with my steak and a little bit of rosé for my dessert and have three glasses of wine wow. without ever opening the bottle. You and I sound like we should do a bunch of eating and drinking together, Michelle. Oh, we, I, I could, uh, yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, I could do both of those really well. <laughs> well, listen, I would love to have you back and um, maybe we could sort of pick off a set of topics and we could uh we could have great. you back every once in a while if you want to do it uh, and we you can have talk about hydrofacial yeah we didn't even touch on hydrofacial which right. is a whole uh a whole powerful discussion as well well i look forward to having you back michelle thank you so much for your time I, your generosity is fantastic i'm so glad eddie uh connected to us you're you're really an inspiring marketer 
Oh, thank you. I've really enjoyed this. I'm so glad. I hope we have a chance to talk again and work on something together again. Well, let's make that happen. Thank you, Michelle. All right. We would like to thank Michelle Stacy. What an amazing interview. And we'd also like to thank our friends at Atranet. If you want to learn how to conquer your category, visit atra.net. That's A-T-R-E dot net. And they will set you up with a legendary B2B website. And if you're looking for a great podcast, we recommend the Cloud Wars Live podcast with friend of the show, Bob Evans. It's always a barn burner. Today's information is provided to you solely for informational purposes. This oddcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. Warning, the creators of this oddcast may have been consuming libations. This show was produced and edited by me, Jason DeFilippo. Sarah Knox and Jamie J provide technical wizardry in our beautiful Lockhead.com website. Show notes are by Diane Gervasio. And as author Nicholas Sparks says, every great love starts with a great story. And until next time, stay legendary. Legendary.